Greetings from the Murder of Grey podcast. Where we look behind the curtain of our own minds. Alright, let's have some fun. Hello and welcome to the Murder of Great Podcast, where each week we find various moral and ethical dilemmas from around the world and around the internet. And we ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. And as always, I'm Christian. And I'm Chris. And welcome back, you guys. Thank you for joining us with another conversation as we dive deeper into the deep recesses of our minds to find out what makes us tick. And... Oh boy, do we have a doozy for you guys today. <laughs> this is this is relatable, right? Like I always feel like I'm going a little bit crazy. So we are going to be talking about insanity a little bit. And the more specifically the idea of pleading insanity in a court case. So a lot of media out there, a lot of movies, the way that they portray pleading insanity, it almost feels like this is an ultimate scapegoat for killers to get away with a murder, right? Like it it feels like the easy way out, like they're just a way to just escape the binds of prison, right? Like there's so much stuff out there. It's just like it feels like they 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 overplay how I guess like what's the word I'm looking for where they like um like over sensualize right like the idea of pleading insanity mm-hmm. but it it's so much worse in real life than what people really think it is like the idea of it you could potentially end up spending a lot more time in a mental institution rather like if opposed to if you just did the time serving your crime right like so it, once you get plead insanity and you end up in a mental institution, then it, you're up to or it's up to the judge at that point to determine, OK, this guy can be let out, you know, so it's it's kind of crazy. And I'm curious, like it feels to me, it feels like a really big moral issue, because how do you actually determine if someone is truly insane like someone could do the research and just figure out the right words to say or the right context to say in order to potentially get away with it right and like so at least on their record because whenever you actually get uh convicted of an insanity plea or whatever you actually it says not guilty due to insanity right or mental illness so like you end up getting a non-guilty like stamp put on your your record which i think is interesting too right like it, should there be a not guilty attached to that even though yes like we're saying they did do the crime but they don't understand the crime is, does that make sense right like i don't know i feel it's, like it's kind of like a weird a weird like gray area right yeah it's definitely a gray area because like i mean you know with some murderers or people that commit crimes you know sometimes they really are like not in control of their mind, you know, especially like, you know, you could see it in their face that they just, you know, almost like they're in a perma shock or something, Mm -hmm. but then you get like killers who are very like articulate and understanding of what they're doing. 
but then just plead insanity when it's like, mm, you left a lot of evidence stating that like you kind of knew what you were doing. You know, there's, uh, I look back at like some of the, the serial killers who, you know, pled insanity and a lot of them, they were really messed up. You know, you look yeah. at like Albert Fish, you look at Ed Jean, who, you know, were cannibals and amongst other things, murdering children. Mm-hmm. And they tried to plead guilty. And obviously, you know, they knew they were insane, but they still want them executed and stuff like that. But it, obviously, they have to go through rigorous, like, evaluations to realize if they actually are like that mentally ill but i mean they still hurt someone like it's still guilty you know it's it's different than i can't really say it's different because i'm trying to like be like you know devil's advocate where i like justify what they did because they don't have control themselves but but regardless they're still a threat to themselves or someone else right yeah. So, like, and, they need to be incarcerated in some way. And I guess, like, being sent to a mental, a mental institution could potentially help them at least understand what they did. But the fact that they could end up in a mental institution and then be deemed, like, you know, reformed and then put back out on the street. Like, who's to say that some sort of trigger warning isn't going to happen, right? Like, it doesn't feel as, like... It's like a, a equal punishment, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's tough, and uh, yeah, there are uh, definitely a lot of tests and uh, things that they have to go through. And actually, in order to plead insanity, you have to do it before the trial even begins. So you need to be com- you need to be evaluated by uh, the defendant's psychologist first, then the state psychologist, and then you can plead insanity. So like you can't do it as like a oh like. It, I, it doesn't look like they have a bunch of evidence on me. Let me just, I'm just going to play insanity now, you know, like halfway through. You actually have to come in with that and like before the trial begins so that the jury's informed that this is what you're saying, like, right? Like, so that there's nothing thrown at them midway through. So it's, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot to it. But I, I think it's pretty, what I found crazy as far as like my research about um, pleading insanity is that like, some of the earliest cases were actually in like 1313, right? Like that's so long ago and it it doesn't feel like, like something from the past, right? Like pleading insanity almost feels like something so recent and new, but maybe that's just because of the way uh, media has portrayed it as something that is so commonly used in courts when it might not be right. And like in early courts uh, in 1313, the English court referred to insane people as the witless who do not have reason whereby they cannot choose the good from the evil. So basically, it's just told them like they're they have no brains and they can't tell the difference between good and evil, right? So it's kind of interesting. But at the same time, in that, in much like five hundred years later, the same court system ended up changing the definition a little bit, but it sounds even worse. Where there was a there's a court there was a a court proceeding going on where a man ended up shooting a lord and killed him, and 
They said that he was a madman who doth not know what he is doing, no more than a brute or a wild beast. So a lot of times when these defendants are trying to plea insanity, they're saying like they are just an animal. They have no emotion, no empathy, no nothing. They're just reacting on pure raw animal instinct. And like that was the argument for so long to just say that this is not a person anymore. This is an animal and you can't convict an animal of murder, right? Like it just seems so wrong and almost like backwards, right? Like no matter what, they still it's still a human being taking the life of another human being. Like you can't just say like, oh, because they don't have the same emotions as me, they no longer are human. Now they are in the same as a beast, right? Like mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel right. It just seems awkward, in my opinion. Uh, But there are some interesting things that have come out from it. They do have a lot of different tests that they do as well to determine um, if someone actually is insane. And, you know, they they kind of work, I guess, a little bit. But really, there's nothing too substantial to them. It's really just a various like a bunch of psychologists talking to a person and saying, yeah, this person doesn't really know the difference between right and wrong. Or, you know, they don't appreciate their actions, meaning like they don't have empathy towards what they were doing. You know, like, it's all the idea of like, they don't know, they don't know any better, right? And out of like, the those studies and some of the more recent things that they're doing now, there actually is more of a hybrid response to pleading insanity. And that is uh, guilty but mentally ill, or GBMI for short, uh, which means that they are still like, because normally whenever you plead insanity, if you are convicted of the crime or they say that you did it, you are, it's called like not guilty still on your papers. But here, what's interesting is that you can be considered guilty So you get the stamp of guilty, but you're mentally ill, which means that you actually do go to jail, you serve time, but you actually still receive mental health services along with serving your sentence too. So like, it's one of those where you don't really have the whole like, you know, 25 to life at 25 years, and I can be up for early release, right? Like now, Mm -hmm. because of this, you are being monitored constantly and it's up to the judges and the psychologists to deem whether or not they're worthy or not. So that could take a very long time or it can be indefinite depending on the person and the severity of the mental illness. It just makes me wonder, like, you know, with these, like, like trying to reform people in these mental institutions, like, I know they have a lot of luck with a lot of different things, but I feel like there's not enough evidence or proof that, you know, they could be reformed. I mean, I also think that they're not really given a chance since they're basically serving life. But, you know, it's like, it just, I don't know, it's just kind of odd to me. You know, like... (sighs) Yeah, it's hard to say that, like, for instance, let's say you have a 40-year-old man that committed a murder, right? And then 20 years down the line, he's 60 years old. And, like, how do you say that he now knows the difference between right and wrong and his actions were wrong, right? Like, or is he just spewing back the words that were fed to him over all these years mm-hmm. because he knows what people want to hear now, right? It's it's almost like whenever you're teaching an infant right from wrong, like they will just say, I'm sorry, but then they're going to hit the kid again. You know what I mean? Like it's, they don't, 
still they might not still have a full grasp of the situation, but they're just like mockingbird repeating things back to you because they know that's what you want to hear in that moment and that's what's going to get them out of trouble, right? Yeah, it's I was I know this is a little different, but thinking about like the whole reformation process, I saw a documentary of uh I guess there's this island in Washington where they send like pedophiles and stuff to and they try to reform them there on that island. And obviously like some of them are there for years, you know, trying to reform and like they say they've had luck with people getting better, but it's like granted like, and same with murders, you know, it's always early childhood trauma and stuff like that. And once it's addressed, but a lot of times these things are act on impulses and urges and yeah, you can control those with a lot of therapy and, you know, like a tool set on how to work your mind around it. But there's always that little small percent of chance that it might not work in that moment. And then it's back to where they were before, you know? Right. And I think the big thing with that too, is that that's more of like a, a sexual drive thing too. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so it's almost like the same thing as like sending someone who's gay to a camp to be reformed and no longer be gay. Right. Like it almost feels like that same kind of situation too, but for pedophiles where it's just not not like, I don't know how much you can really rewire your sexual drive. Like, can you, I don't think you can. Like, I think you can make someone feel guilt for what they are into or what they enjoy, but I don't think you can ever, like, fully tell, like, get someone to believe that they are no longer attracted to this thing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these murderers, too, like, they all have, like, sexual assault charges as well. So it's like, you know, that's another impulse that they would act on. So it's like, there's so many things at play to the point where it's like, if, the insanity is just too far. Like there's probably really no way to reform it. You know, when you think about like just looking at the name insanity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's really interesting. What's really crazy is like, we thought about this idea for this episode before actually knowing this, but um, there's something really current going on in the whole insanity plea bargain stuff right now in 2021. Um, one of the girls who was a part of the Slender Man stabbing is up for potentially up for early release. She might be getting out of the mental institution that she was put into um, pretty soon here. And like, that's kind hmm. of scary, right? Like, so the Slender Man stabbings are really interesting. So, I mean, if you guys don't know who Slender Man is, it's a modern day cryptid. It was created on the internet. It's a it's a man without a face. Sometimes he has tentacles. Sometimes he doesn't. You know, just very slender individual uh, who is basically just like a, a portrayed as a demon, right? Mm-hmm. And these there's two girls who were in middle school at the time. I believe they were 14 years old, and they thought that they met Slender Man in the woods of Wisconsin. Uh, who was living in a mansion and they were told or they believe that they were told that they he wanted blood so that they can become his proxies so these 14 year old girls who really fed into this 
Slender Man idea, this cryptid who was created on the internet, like we created this thing, we gave this thing life and power. Um, <laughs> they believe that they were actually being talked to by the Slender Man, or at least that's what they claimed. And so they ended up getting one of their classmates and convincing them to go into the woods with them. And they proceeded to stab her 19 times. Luckily, that girl did survive. She actually is alive. Um, they missed her main artery by like centimeters, apparently. Um, but she was still stabbed 19 times. Um, but before they left the girl, they told her, just lay down so you don't bleed out as much. And then they end up leaving the woods and leaving the girl in the middle of the, like this woods. And the girl ends up crawling her way back out gets found and these two girls who are in middle school end up getting convicted of assault and one of them ends up in a mental institution while the other one is actually serving time in prison and the one that's in the mental institution actually is making an appeal saying that she feels reformed she feels guilt for what she did but she feels that she can't contribute to society unless she's actually in society and yeah, so that's her that's her argument right now of her trying to get out. And to me, I'm just like that's like yeah, and more insane stuff, but that's crazy. Like there's no way like I don't know. Like sure kids are impressionable, maybe it was just some like something that went too far, right? Like sure they can learn and grow up, but like to actually actively stab someone 19 times, watch them bleed out and just say, oh, just lay down, you'll be fine, right? And then just leave. Like, it, just, there's something broken there, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. something not right. And I don't know how I feel about her potentially getting out. Like, I understand that she maybe she wants to contribute to society, but her life is going to be very, very different than what she expects when she gets out, right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that she understands how negative her life is going to be or even if she can cope with this new society and be able to actually contribute the way that she claims that she can and wants to. So I, I don't know. And it's tough. I feel bad for the family of the girl who was stabbed too because they're fighting this. They're like, this is crazy. Why are you even you know, entertaining the possibility of her being released to the streets again? when like they were so easily convinced by basically just an internet thing right like just an internet image like they were- i mean the whole slenderman thing started as like a photoshop contest like yeah early 2000s on something awful and then they passed it around creating like fake witness eyewitness stories and making the images look really real and it's like crazy to think that you know just photoshopping a creature like that on a photo like gets to the point where people actually believe it's real mm-hmm. you know it's like it i mean that plays a much dangerous role in you know with photoshop and all that kind of stuff like manipulating people in a sense but it's it's crazy like to really think that you know and it originally was just a photo yeah and you know, you look at old mythology and or you know folklore. Like there are stories of a tall man who is faceless, but like the top hat man and stuff like that. You know, like yeah, they fit the and, same you know description to a point. But yeah, at the same time, it's like you know, it's like people saying like demons took control of them and they had to 
do things to please the demons and it's like you know it it it's hard to believe yeah it it actually like we're hearing about slender man and like the the origins and everything like that it really reminds me of that book um american gods um mm. yeah i mean it was a book first for you guys who don't know it i know it is the show now and it's a good show but the book is fantastic but the gods talk a lot about the idea of there, there are so many gods around us, but some of them are weaker than others, and some of them have even passed away over the years because people stopped talking about them or remembering them or thinking about them, right? So the idea of like the more you think about something, the more you have it in your mind, the stronger they become and the more power and like the more real and tangible that they can become in our worlds, right? So it's it's kind of interesting to think about that, like, Slenderman was nothing, but we breath like we breathe life into him, and we talk about the idea of Slenderman, and people are genuinely scared of it, right? So, like, the more fear you have for it, the more you're feeding it, and potentially making like if this was like the world of American Gods or anything like that, like making a new god, which happened a lot in that book. Like, there's a lot mm. of new gods being born every day. Like, there was a god of locomotion because people praised the trains as a, you know, a modern marvel during the time. There's the god of internet because everyone's on there constantly giving it power and, like, worshiping it and it being, like, a general, like, the idea of ultimate knowledge, right? Like, so it's almost like that same concept of, like, we can create these gods, these entities through our actions like that. It's a really great story. I love it a lot. But it feels like that's kind of what we're doing. And these little girls who are so impressionable made it a reality. They made it their reality and decided to act on it so that because they thought he was really talking to them. So, that's wild. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of cool stuff like that. Or uh, cool is probably not the right word. But it's just interesting stuff like that, right? Like where... A lot of people, like you said, really feel like there's something talking to them, something pushing them from the background. But like, in my opinion, it could just be schizophrenia that's being untreated, right? Like schizophrenia comes in many different shapes and forms. And some people just hear a small voice in the back of their mind. Some people hear screaming in their face, you know, like mm -hmm. I have. Unfortunately, I, I I have a family member who goes through it and without her medications, she hears screaming like it's horrible for her. And luckily, like she's able to keep it down to a whisper, she says, which is wow, it's really sad. But it's it's a true it's a true thing that people deal with on a day to day basis. And that's where I like every time I hear stories about this where it's like, oh, you know, I heard something in the woods tell me to do this right or like to hurt this person because the demon told me to. It's like, no, like that might just be the voices in your head. Like this is a mental illness that needs to be treated before it can be something worse. And like, I mean, in the situation of this right here with these two little girls, like there had to have been some sort of obsession going on in their day-to-day -day lives. Like the, you know, like their parents must have caught on to something weird happening. And I guess like, but I can't really like, you know, I'm not a parent, so I can't like blame them for anything or, you know, divulge too much blame on them. But like mm -hmm. there, like, there had to have been something that 
maybe like, like, oh, you know, maybe therapy could be a good thing for my child, right? Like, I think therapy is great for everybody. And that could be like an answer for all these cases, honestly, just a nice, like round of therapy could help make you realize, oh, this isn't an entity. It's just, you know, voices that I can control in my mind, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, it's tough. I know it's really hard to deal with that stuff. So, it's a really tough subject, but there, yeah. But it's 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 topical right now because the, these girls are potentially, or the one of the girls is potentially getting out, and so it's like what? So I guess like my question now, since I we like to you know boil it down into a question is, do you think that it would be a good idea or wise, or do you think that she could even be potentially reformed to be released? And it's only been four years, you know. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Four years is pretty quick, in my opinion. I mean, granted, you know, I, I'm not there to see how much she's changed, but I don't know. Like, I feel like that's just too short. Because you have to think, like, other people murder, and it's like they're in there for longer, mm-hmm. you know? like Yeah, like, in, in that short amount of time, like, her growing up, Yes, she was a teenager. Now she's like 18, 19 years old. It's like, is that like, is she at that right mind of actually knowing what is right and wrong? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's a really tough question to ask. And ultimately, it's up to those judges. So, I mean, we have to kind of respect the choices that what, what the judges and the psychologists make. But I mean, it's it is going to be tough for her in society regardless of the fact right like you kind of have to have a little bit of sympathy for her too i guess where like yeah maybe she is reformed and she'll never get a chance (laughs) you know that's true like i could see that happening you know it's like unless they move to like a faraway place if she goes back to where she was it's like you know you're gonna be ousted there and to that point of you know exclusion from everything it's Mm -hmm. just gonna it takes a strong mind to deal with being like an outcast. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be tough. It's a, it's a tough call, honestly. But there is another case that I found really interesting too, that where this man, he was a, a serial killer in the seventies and he also heard voices telling him to do something. And he actually tried to get the insanity deal, too, in his case. Um, but it was actually shot down. They said that he was fit enough to go on standard trial. So this is a case, like, the first one with the Slenderman stabbings, the insanity plea did work, right? Like, she was able to get mental help or, you know, get help for her mental illness at that time, which is good. Um, but for this guy, he was, he, they deemed him like that too fit to be insane, right? Too mentally fit. And the person I'm talking about is David Berkowitz. And if that name sounds familiar to you guys, David Berkowitz actually goes by the name of Son of Sam. That was a nickname that he gave himself, which is really interesting too. He, he actually would write that on letters that he would leave for the police at the scenes of the crime. So 
between the summers of 1976 and 1977, Berkowitz went on a rampage through New York. He ended up gunning down multiple people. Um, he actually killed six people and he ended up injuring seven um, over the course of a year. Uh, and it was usually younger people who were just sitting in their cars at night, right? They're just having a chat or whatever oh. it may be. And it's actually where we get a lot of those common you know, like horror movie tropes of like, oh, if you're hanging out in your car, right? And then all of a sudden the slasher killer shows up. This guy kind of made that a thing, which is really terrifying. And the, yeah, yeah right? Like it never made you want to like hang out in a car, right? Or the, remember the idea of like the make out point in movies, you know? And oh, God. all of a sudden it's like, oh, the killer's right behind you with his hook hand and he's going to get, right? Like, the, this is kind of where all that stuff co- came from. And the name Sam is kind of where all this whole story becomes very bizarre, right? So Sam actually is the name of his neighbor's dog, right? And he believed <sighs> that Sam was possessed by Satan and basically forcing him to do these things, forcing them to hurt people. Uh, but Bergwitz did have a very difficult life growing up Uh, he was always kind of prone to violence growing up Uh, he was known to steal he was known to convict arson Uh, he hurt animals a lot whenever he was younger like he was pretty he was a dark kid you know and if dexter has taught me nothing (laughs) the early (laughs) whenever you're a kid and you're hurting animals that's never a good thing right like that automatically shows like you're going to be a serial killer when you grow up. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty bad. But whenever he was 18 years old, he ended up joining the army. And after, you know, apparently failing in the army, he ended up moving back to New York. And, and whenever he uh, like after a couple of years of being in New York, he ends up moving into a two or uh, um two-family home so it's one of those homes where it's like you know they're like connected you know like they share a wall mm-hmm. it's kind of old school stuff but uh he ends up living in there and the neighbor's dog would end up keeping him up all night and he thought that the the dog was possessed by satan and satan was howling and barking to make him go mad oh, <laughs> by him like keeping him up all night with all this noise so it's kind of bizarre you know so after him going a little bit crazy, he ends up, you know, going on this killing rampage. Uh, actually, his first incident of him attacking somebody, he ended up stabbing two women who were walking alone uh, in the middle of the street at the middle of the night. He stabbed them with a hunting knife, but luckily both women ended up surviving. Uh, but that was his first case of like actually harming a person that we know of, at least, right? We don't really know what happened whenever he was away in Korea during like in the army. Uh, the only thing we do know is that he actually did contract a venereal disease while he was out there, and he claims that uh-huh. that's going to be the last woman he ever sleeps with or something, right? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like a weird thing going on. But what I think is crazy about this case is. The entire time that he was doing these murders, he was gaining more and more confidence in his acts and really, really like playing up the idea of him, you know, this is what he was meant to do, which is pretty, you know, disturbing in its own right. And he would leave these notes behind for the cops. Um, And they're very like either very cryptid, very confusing, or they were, you know, like 
very like they were taunting in a way. Like one of the notes, uh, it was because Craig is Craig, so must the streets be filled with Craig death and huge drops of lead pour down upon her head until she was dead. Yet the cats still come out at night to mate and the sparrows still sing in the morning. And so like he would leave little notes like that on the bodies and actually, um, one of the later notes was way more taunting towards the cops. So they started out very cryptid and then they became more of like, almost like, you know, the whole idea of like the gingerbread man that can't catch me, can't catch me. It, it really uh-huh. feels that way. So one of the last notes that was the cops received was, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working on the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. And then it's signed at the bottom, Son of Sam. So he became very, very confident in his actions. So it it really makes it feel like he knew what he was doing, right? He was very aware of his actions. He was very aware of what was going on. And what actually got him caught is a parking ticket surprisingly so that's how i get yeah right (laughs) pay your parking tickets everybody (laughs) but um during the last attack there was a witness on the scene who said that they saw a large man um with some a dark object in his hand taking a parking ticket off of his car so they were able to trace that parking ticket they found the address and when they went to the to you know david's house or berkowitz's house they actually went there thinking that he was just going to be another witness that they can get more information out of. But when they got there, they found rifles, they found guns, they found duffel bags, they found maps of all of the scenes of the crimes, and they actually found a note that he was going to leave at the next scene. He already had it pre-written out, and that's how he was ultimately caught. Um, and then he ended up, you know, trying to plea insanity, but he was interviewed by multiple, multiple psychologists, state psychologists and uh, the defendant's psychologists as well. Um, and they deemed him fit to, you know, go through with the trial. So he didn't get the insanity plea. And he was actually sentenced to six separate or separate instances of 25 years to life. So, Ooh. yeah, that's pretty crazy. And for me, the kicker, apparently he was interviewed three years after he was sentenced, and he admits that he never believed that he or the dog was possessed. Wow. Yeah. So this whole time of him feeding this narrative of the animal being possessed by Satan and doing all that, and then all of a sudden now he's just saying, yeah, no, I know, there was no dog, there's no Satan, it is what, you know. And to me, maybe that's him trying to say, like, I know what I'm doing now. I am of a sound body and mind. Maybe I can get out. But, you know, like, what what purpose did that serve for him at that point? I think maybe in the beginning he felt like he was justified with it. He made it sound like it wasn't as bad. Like, you know, by putting the blame on being possessed, he felt like, you know, it, it wasn't such a bad thing he was doing. And then, you know, for him saying he never believed he was possessed, it's like, he probably looked back and he's like, 
well, this doesn't sound very intelligent. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound grandiose or however you say it. You know, like you look at like other like like uh, Dahmer and stuff like that who knew what they were doing. He probably wanted to sound more like them maybe Mm. instead of sounding like he was trying to push blame like he's trying to own up to what he did but it is kind of weird how he shifts his story and it really does make you wonder like with all these people that have claimed they were possessed and stuff like if we interviewed them now like say 10 20 years later like do they still believe they were Mm -hmm. or did they really know what they were doing and they were just trying to justify it that way so I think ultimately the my question now is with these two cases that we've kind of done some research on and with some of the other things we've looked into, how do you feel about the insanity plea as a whole? Do you think it's a viable thing for the court of law to determine or do you think that it's a potential out for some really heinous crimes? For me, how I would like to see it used, right? So instead of, you know, thinking that you're going to get out early with it, you know, say you plead insanity and you get sent to a mental institution, use that person as a study, right? To really get into the inner workings of their mind, see what made them get to that point. Mm -hmm. What are some things that could help them? And granted, like, if it doesn't work for them, at least you did all that research, And, you know, you can keep doing that with all these people and then kind of find a common thing that links all of them together Mm -hmm. and then, you know, make it really known to see if, I mean, it's kind of hard to say you want to prevent this kind of stuff from happening because you can't, but maybe find a way to prevent it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like they could use them as like studies. But should they be able to get out early by pleading insanity? No. Right. You know, it's because a lot of these things saying they're possessed, there's no way to really prove it. So, I mean, you can't give someone... You can't prove possession. Yeah. It's unless your voice changes crazy and you're floating off your bed. Start throwing a pea soup on people, you know. (laughs) Call your mom a bitch and (laughs) punch out the priest or whatever it is. Yeah. Unless you're putting lotion on the skin, it's like, it's, (laughs) I don't know, like, it's just, it's weird to think that, you know, you plead insanity and then it's like, okay, why would you let them out any earlier? Like. Yeah, that that shouldn't be a reason to let anyone out early for their actions. Yeah, especially when there hasn't been enough, like, work done to say they've, like, cured or fixed someone Mm -hmm. well enough, like. Instead of giving them 20 years in prison, you give them like five years in a mental institution. It's like, what are that? What in that five years are they going to be able to learn to really change their life? Yeah. Because obviously to get to that point where they were, they must have such deep rooted trauma that, I mean, maybe five years is enough time for some to really address their issues. But for a lot of them, probably not because it's going to take them a lot of time to acknowledge what they did and then to really think about their actions and what they did wrong and how they could be better that you can't do all that in a small amount of years that's like rewriting re 
wiring your brain yeah. and you can't do that in just a couple of years yeah. and if if some of these people are suffering from things like schizophrenia and whatnot that doesn't go away right like yeah. that's a constant and i know people who've been going to therapy their entire life and they're on different medications and they still suffer from the same issues regardless of the fact they're still are kind of dangerous to themselves at certain points, you know, but they are deemed, mm -hmm. you know, okay enough to live out in society and, you know, try and make it. But there's always that chance of something triggering them and pushing them over the edge and having them hurt themselves again. But actually, um, when you were talking about like the using them as potential study figures to figure out what's going on, it did remind me of something I learned in my genetics class that there was a study done on in a jail at one point on criminals who were hyperviolent, right? So they were associated mm. with like assault and things like that. And they actually were studying their chromosomes uh, down to that level. And it turns out there's a thing called Jacob syndrome where all of the men who were in for very heinous, violent crimes, they had XYY pairing. Um, so it, that like, they all had the same, you know, coding block in that situation where they produced extra testosterone and they were more aggressive and they were more like, you know, short fused in a way. And they were able to determine that every single person who had that trait or who was in there for, you know, a violent act had that same block of chromosomes, mm. which is really interesting. So maybe there is something to that, you know, I mean, we do have like the designer baby stuff going on. Maybe we could potentially wipe out hyper violent crime if we're able to figure things out on that level. But of course, it's going to take a lot more research to figure that stuff out and to really determine if that's, you know, complete truth or if there's other factors. You know, obviously, we did talk about nature versus nurture in a previous episode with Freya Love and that, you know, nature and nurture, they like they both play a part. Like we could potentially handle the nature part this way by, you know, studying chromosomes and figuring out which ones to potentially eradicate. Uh, but there's always going to be the nurture aspect. If they're growing up in a broken home or an abusive family, then they might be more prone to continue the line of abuse, right? So it's it's tough because it, it, there's potential things we could do scientifically, but emotionally and you know in the real world then those factors come into play and it's a lot more variables that we just can't take into account so it's it's a hard one to kind of i guess think about the there's no right you know way of handling that like it, mm -hmm. so it's it's tough i just think that everybody should be you know mandatory therapy for everyone <laughs> like that should just be oh thing. yeah regardless yeah. It, it, or at least make it free so anybody that might have a slight inclination like of anything wrong like they can just talk to someone yeah without judgment yeah. you know yeah i think that's the biggest thing that would be the hugest help i mean if you listen to every other episode of our show you can see that you know if therapy was free or available everywhere like a lot of these problems wouldn't maybe wouldn't happen yeah Less likely to, potentially. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. I think that's going to do it for us this week. Hope you guys enjoyed a little conversation here as we dive into the insanity plea in the court system. Um, it's a very interesting idea. There's a lot of, you know, you can look at it from both sides. And it's really hard to determine if someone's being genuine with their insanity. Right? There's no real way of 
telling that truth or not. But yeah, what do you guys think about the insanity plea? How do you guys feel about it? Do you think it's something viable in the court system? Do you think it's something that we should kind of do away with? And if a human is doing harm to another human, they should be tried the same as everyone else. Um, let us know. Reach out to us on the socials. We'd love to hear from you guys. But with that, we're going to sign off now. <laughs> we'll, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk to you guys next week with another set of interesting and crazy dilemmas. All right. Uh, crazy. So crazy. All right. Bye. Bye.